Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This episode is brought to you by Flipboard. In today's chaotic media landscape, it can feel impossible to reach people while they're actually paying attention. Flipboard solves that problem. Learn how at flipboardforbrands.com. That's flipboardforbrands.com. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture. It's in the end. Everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creativity editor at Adweek. And with me is our co-host and social editor, Sammy Main. Sammy, always great to have you. Hello. I feel like it's been a while. I was stuck traveling for quite a bit in like a weird loop of travel, but I'm here. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah. Well, and we've also got back Patrick Coffey, senior editor on the Agency Beat, who has so much to talk about today. There was no way we could have done this week's episode without you. So thank you for making time for us, Patrick. And thanks, David. The post-can hangover is finally wearing off. <laughs> yeah, you've had a, had a few weeks, finally get past it. Uh, and first time on the podcast, we've got Alyssa Fleck, breaking news writer for Adweek. Alyssa, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we are going to dive into it because this is like the newsiest episode I swear we've ever done. The, the, we've got the news section and then we're going to segue to like news and then talk some news. But it's all fascinating. So don't turn away. If you come here for silliness, we'll make sure there's plenty of it. And it is, man, there's some ridiculous stuff in here too, but let's get to it. All right, let's start with the bad news. I mean, there's a lot of bad news in here for uh, companies and brands and agencies, but uh, let's start with the bad news for Adweek. Sammy, you are leaving us. Bum, bum, bum. It sounds so ominous, but um, I, did, yes, I didn't mean I to make it sound like I was telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy. This is I how I news, found Sammy. out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us, uh, tell us what, what you're going to be doing. Uh, you are obviously a recent author of How to Deal, uh, my personal favorite tarot book, and I'm sure you've got <laughs> other cool projects in the work. But tell us uh, what's going on with you. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, it's one of those very classic millennial feelings of like I need time to be creative. As I whine from my self-care corner. Uh, so, yes, I, I don't, as of right now, have a, a specific plan in mind, which my mother is thrilled about. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to kind of carve out some time between, you know, part-time gigs and freelance writing and, and hopefully work on more creative projects like the aforementioned book. Maybe there's another book or two in me. Um, and yeah, just kind of trying to see where, where that creative wind, uh, pushes me. So 
I'm here through the end of the month. Any good social editors out there want to knock on our door? We're looking. Uh, yeah, that's the overall very vague plan that I have for myself as of now. Well, I want to be very clear that you have been an absolute joy to work with, uh, both in your previous role covering digital media as a staff writer and then as social editor and co-host on the podcast. Uh, you have just been a daily joy uh, for all of us, and we've uh, we've just loved having you around. So it's heartbreaking for all of us to lose you, but at the same time, you have so many cool side projects, and you always have. I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm positive I speak for all of us when I say that uh, we're really excited to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Now it does feel like when you like stage a fake funeral just to see what people <laughs> say about you when you go. It's just like a fun compliment collecting service for me now. Um, but I, I really do appreciate it. And it's been, you know, I've I've been able to do a couple of different roles and put on the podcast hat since I've been here. And there's there's been such fun opportunities um, for for me since I've been here at Adweek. So I'm incredibly appreciative of you guys as well. Thank you so much. How can people reach you if they have uh, things they want to throw at you? Um, so I am at Sammy Main on pretty much every social platform. Um, my like businessy email is hi there Sammy, uh, and Sammy is spelled S A M I M A I N. Uh, you can find all of that at my website sammymain.com. Um, or just, you know, wait a couple weeks and at me on Twitter when I'm paying attention to social media again. Um, yeah, I'm around. Come at me. All right. Well, that's enough sadness for our day. Um, but yeah, <laughs> if, uh, if you guys know anyone who would be interested in being social editor at Adweek, uh, come find us. You can go to Adweek Jobs. I'm sure it's prominently featured there. And, uh, or just hit us up on Twitter at Adweek. All right, let's get into the big news. Patrick had just a hell of a story the other day. Uh, in, in short, uh, we basically reported that the Army is saying that it will crack down on its marketing efforts after an audit found that tens of millions of dollars were being wasted on what are called ineffective uh, projects, among many other terms that were used to describe uh, some of the marketing efforts. Uh, Patrick, let, tell us how this has been a story that's been in the works for a while. We've reported some of the er- early rumblings about it, uh, but tell us how you first learned about this and how you tracked down this uh, exclusive. It, it has, and there's there's quite a few moving parts here, David, but um, it, it really started uh, back in early 2016 when the Army's marketing division, which is called the Army Marketing and Research Group, asked the undersecretary of the Army under President Obama for additional funding. And he essentially said, okay, but before we do that, let's run a review of your marketing practices and see what your budget is and what your returns are on that spend. And um, it's what the product of that was a uh, formal audit of fiscal year 2016 and essentially all of the paid marketing for the U.S. Army during that year. Um, and coincidentally, it ran while the account was under review. And the review's been going on since 2015. McCann has been, an IPG and McCann have been the Army's agency of records since uh, 2005. But the uh, it went into review, as, as these contracts usually do, on a regular basis in 2015. And since then, it's been lots of stops and starts. The review has um, officially relaunched at least once, and there's been a lot of back and forth. McCann's uh, contract has been extended a couple of times, and there was even an incident in which they were dismissed from the review due to technicalities in the early contracts that they signed back more than 10 years ago, and they had to sue to get back into it. So it's it's been a lot of um, 
you know, ups and downs, uh, and, and this is a major contract. So you have to keep in mind that the Department of Defense estimates that the winning agency could be responsible for up to $4 billion in spending over the next 10 years, assuming that their contract is extended. So in that context, um, we first, well, I first heard about it in uh, late last year when a couple of people within the Department of Defense sent uh, some notes to Omnicom and WPP, top executives there. And th those are the agencies that are currently competing to replace McCann as the AOR for the Army. And what they essentially said was that the review had been, in their own words, compromised in favor of the incumbent. And as evidence of that, they provided video and photographs of uh, the former now former head of marketing for the Army's marketing and research group, and a woman who had been a lead on the account at McCann in what looked like a compromising relationship. Yeah, they um, were, if I remember right, they were like dancing and kissing, right? Yes, at a um, concert in the Virginia area, which is near where the, the Army's headquarters is. And it and had been, reportedly had been after a meeting between the McCann and Army teams. Yeah, and, and, and as uh, as most most people can probably guess, uh, such relationships are generally frowned upon. Uh, you don't want your, you know, one of your top uh, account leads, uh, you know, having a relationship with the client. <laughs> I think is a recipe for disaster, pretty much in any in any agency environment. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it, it's especially so because this is a U.S. government client, and um, you know, all of the budgets concerned here are you know public public funds. Um, which is one reason that it that it got more scrutiny than it probably would have otherwise. Uh, and then afterward, we received or I, I received an early copy of the audit, which concerned it was a little broader than than the final version. It concerned the years 2013 to 2016 and estimated that the army had spent nearly a billion dollars that was not uh, providing the greatest return on its investment, and it was. Um, just very, it was very contentious. It was essentially the Army audit agency going back and forth with the Army's marketing department and, and arguing about what was or what was not um, most effective. And the final version was, was a bit more, um, its focus was narrower, but it did essentially confirm the conclusions that we had earlier reported. And it primarily focused on uh, event series that were designed to um, connect Army recruiters with members of the public who they could then sign up to join the Army. And it found that 20 of these 23 programs that cost uh, nearly $40 million in 2016 had not generated a positive impact. Many of them had cost several million dollars and didn't really lead to uh, any significant number of um, individuals signing Army contracts. That's an 87% failure rate. <laughs> 20, yes, twenty out of yes. twenty-three is uh, is not 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 a great and and so and just to to give you due credit the uh, this final report uh, it was not exactly handed out to the media you you uh, tracked this down through a freedom of information request right yes I had to file a formal request with the Army Audit Agency and um, you know they sent me the document and then I had to follow up with uh, Q and A's about specifics um, regarding both the findings of the audit and the Army's relationship with McCann. So um, that was, you know, it's uh, it was just a multifaceted process. But 
the audit the audit found that, and then they also they also cited some shortcomings in the army's own um, approach to marketing. They said that the that the army had no specific goals, that it had not successfully recorded the data related to its efforts um, completely or accurately, and that it had not been able to identify programs that weren't working and then uh, cancel them. And estimated that the, these programs, if they were continued, would cost something like uh, $220 million over the next five years, while again delivering very minimal returns on the uh, what is ultimately the investment of the American public. Patrick, let me ask you a devil's advocate question here. If it, Do you think if, and I mean, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but if a similar audit were run on any kind of major national brand marketer, you know, is, is this too far off? I feel like reading through it, I felt like uh, I'm guessing this is true of a lot of brands that aren't really good about keeping tabs of their marketing budgets. But I don't know what what it, what what do you think? Oh, I mean, I have no doubt that that if you conducted an audit of it, any given major company, you would find similar inefficiencies. Um, speaking very generally, but again, the reason that this particular account was under greater scrutiny is that this is the U.S. Army that it's taxpayer funded. And that the um, the agency has a relationship with the U.S. government. Well, it is a fascinating story. I really strongly recommend uh, everyone check it out. Uh, the headline is U.S. Army will restrict its marketing efforts after an audit finds millions in wasteful spending. Uh, you can just Google any version of that and uh, Adwe can find it. Congratulations, Patrick, on uh, just a hell of a scoop and a great read. And I thought it, it's presented really well, really clearly. We've got a great kind of uh, animated pull quotes dropped in from Yuli on our web art team. It's, it's, a, it's a great read. So uh, congratulations and thanks for pulling all that together. Thank you, David. David. All right. In other big news, I mean, if there's any client bigger than uh, than the army, it's Build a Bear. (laughs) (laughs) And so let's let's go (laughs) let's go from number one to number two here. Uh, Now, Build a Bear, as as those of you uh, who have kids or recently were kids, I don't know, uh, you might be familiar with Build a Bear. It is the rather expensive way of custom designing a. I don't know. I mean, they have all sorts of versions. They're not all bears. I, I mean, dino- it's pretty cheap when you consider you're putting a heart into a teddy bear. Like, that's major surgery when you think about it. You're breathing life into a, <laughs> like, I think you literally have to, like, whisper something to it. There's yeah, some, no, I did that when I built mine. <laughs> there's a, this was six months ago, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, for those of you who have not experienced it, Build-A-Bear is just... It's a thing, man. I mean, I'm not going to say it's like a racket. It's a perfectly fine business model, but it is, uh, you know, it's qu- it's quite a bit. It's not cheap. Uh, and they, they really, it's like, you know, how video games have microtransactions. Build-A-Bear has like, all, do you want to, you can't just have a naked teddy bear. You got to get a vest. And if you're going to get a vest, you got to get a jaunty set of boots. <laughs> like, <laughs> by the time you walk out the door, that thing has cost you. Uh, a small fortune. Um, but uh, Alyssa, you wrote about their kind of PR disaster that they had where it's largely being described as a promotion so successful it failed spectacularly. So tell us what <laughs> happened with Build-A-Bear. Well, I know it sounds like it might be more lighthearted news than uh, the Army story, but that's um, that might be up for debate because uh, Build-A-Bear, which has stores across the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, decided to run this promotion um, this past Thursday, and it was the pay-your-age promotion. So essentially, um, you know, people would come in with their – the idea was that they would come in with their kids, and they'd be able to build a bear for, you know, the, the 
the age of their child. So theoretically, I mean, this could go as, as low as $1. Um, and as, you know, as David was mentioning, these are bears that can run you, you know, over $50 on a standard day. Um, so what happened was uh, people really turned out for this. And, um, you know, in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, everywhere they were doing this, um, there was, a you know, such a massive turnout that they were getting lines coming out of malls that were like a mile long and, you know, some waits up to seven hours. And uh, this resulted in, you know, no small amount of unrest because people really want their teddy bears. And... Uh, and they ended up having to close the promotion down early before the day was even out. And at least one location uh, location in the U.S., the cops were called. Man, the you know, it's like there is nothing as a parent. I mean, not to say there's nothing worse. There's a lot worse, but there's there's few feelings worse to, to me as a parent than when you like want to do something special for your kid, you tell them what you're going to do and then you get there and just can't do it, right? <laughs> like you, like, hey, we're all going to go get ice cream and the ice cream store is closed and like for a kid that's just devastating especially when you're like okay i guess we're just going back home you know and so i did it's as much as like on the one hand this is a very first world problem of like people could not get their customized teddy bears (laughs) at the reasonable prices they wanted on the other hand you know there were probably people who normally could not afford this and there were people you know there were a lot of kids who were probably so stoked this was like christmas for them you know to get to go to it because kids absolutely love it it's like you know, as we were kind of joking about, there's this whole process of stuffing the animal and putting a heart in it and giving it a voice and all this stuff that kids really love. Uh, and so, you know, man, a heartbreak. But what are they doing to try to kind of make good and keep people from hating them for life? Well, um, so the company did offer vouchers. Uh, supposedly, they offered vouchers on site to people who were waiting in line, giving them a $15 discount um, on, on a future bear, as well as offering these vouchers online for $15 to members of the bonus club. I don't know that people were completely happy with this uh, consolation prize, but um, I mean, all things considered, you know, I think this was, this is not really going to hurt Build-A-Bear. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of a a disaster that turned out to be a little bit brilliant, like in the, um, in the vein of the IHOB situation. I mean, it's, it's pretty great publicity, for Build-A-Bear. I mean, it's, frankly, it's reminding people that this store exists. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think that, you know, the brand definitely learned that things that seem too good to be true tend to turn out that way. If you're offering people the opportunity to get a teddy bear that could usually go for $50 for nearly free, too many people are going to turn out. Um, And everyone loves to save money. And as you mentioned, you know, for a lot of parents, a $50 Teddy bear is a luxury item. It's a huge opportunity. But at the end of the day, I, I really don't think it's going to hurt the brand because, you know, now everyone remembers that Build-A-Bear exists. This, remind, this is what I always call the Tencent beer night problem, which is that something that sounds good and sounds generous can often end up blowing up in your face. It's like in the mid-70s, the the they, uh, uh, Cleveland Indians, I think, uh, did this Tencent beer night promotion. And it turns out that if you let people drink beer for 10 cents a cup, <laughs> <laughs> they get wrecked. <laughs> and, and so they it's like this. cheap things. They they literally rioted during the ninth inning. The game had to be forfeited. <laughs> like it's this famous, yeah, it's this famous moment in sports where if you thought about it, 
maybe we can't really sell like millions of pairs for a dollar without this being a nightmare. But on the other hand, I remember when I worked for an ad agency and we did this promotion for uh, a chain and it was, it was so successful. Like they had to call out the cops, not to like wrangle people, but to do traffic enforcement because they had like such a line of cars waiting to get in. And I have to admit, like when you're an ad agency, that's when you just like put your hands in the air. You're like, I am a God. <laughs> you know, it's like I can, <laughs> I can bring, bring this city to a standstill. Uh, but, uh, you know, this case, when there's the wailing of children <laughs> behind it, probably not as enjoyable. Well, thank you for catching us up on that. Definitely uh, check out Adweek. Uh, Build a Bear tries to bounce back from its pay your age fiasco was the headline on Alyssa's story. Now let's move on to something somewhat brighter, this week's ad worth watching. All right, this is uh, a continuation. Well, it's actually a continuation to two two pretty obscure things. One is a, a Taco Bell ad that a lot of people may have missed uh, from uh, from a while back. Uh, I think, was it early this year, Alyssa? Yeah, I think it was like January maybe, that, around then. So they did. Uh, they uh, Taco Bell and Agency Deutsch uh, did a uh, fake trailer called Web of Fries that was about a guy who goes down this dark rabbit hole of trying to um, find out why Taco Bell has never had fries, which is a question literally no one's ever asked themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but but for the sake of the promotion of their new nacho fries, uh, someone asked that, and he it was basically a send up of any kind of thriller where people start asking the wrong questions. And they get like phone calls saying you need to stop snooping into things. You know, it's this kind of film noir uh, thing. Let's go back and listen because some of the audio uh, from the original Web of Fries is is uh, just fantastic. Big Fries have been riding the ketchup train for 50 years. Now you come poking around about Mexican spices, nacho cheese sauce. You've made someone very, very salty. The kid's getting close. And so this uh, this new one, Web of Fries. Two uh, follows that up, but also follows up, as one would imagine, 1993's Demolition Man, <laughs> which we've all been waiting. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> it's an obvious zag. We've you... been waiting. <laughs> and uh, Demolition Man is, I think, one of the most underappreciated movies of the 90s. I think partly because it was marketed at the time, which uh, several people on this podcast may not be old enough to remember, uh, but it was marketed at the time as like an action movie starring Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. And it was like this big, you know, big guns, big action, future cop, like a cop had been frozen and woken up decades later but it was actually this very satirical kind of movie it's it's a classic like sci-fi as a satire of modern life uh you know it kind of makes fun of political correctness it makes fun of uh, just a bunch of different things um some parts of it don't hold up as well as others uh but anyway there is a gag in there that a lot that a lot of people remember which is that uh taco bell is the only restaurant left in america <laughs> it's like, it's literally that's it so if you want to go out as they do in the movie you go to taco bell and uh sylvester stallone's character is understandably confused by this when they when they ask him to like go out for dinner and dancing at taco bell so let's listen to some of the original audio from demolition man this is uh 25 five years ago uh and uh let's hear what they had to say he says i saved his life which i'm not even sure i did and my reward is dinner and dancing at taco bell i mean hey i like mexican food but come on your tone is quasi facetious but you do not realize that taco bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars so so now all restaurants are taco bell no way so 
as an obvious connection between Web of Fries and Demolition Man, uh, Taco Bell decided to celebrate the anniversary of Demolition Man uh, by telling the story of the franchise wars that were referenced in that uh, original movie. This is, by the way, just funny little side note for nerds about such things. In the American version of the movie, it is Taco Bell. In some of the overseas versions, it is Pizza Hut. Uh, because mm-hmm. they did not know what Taco Bell was, I believe, in the UK and a few other mm-hmm. countries. So they kind of threw in Pizza Hut instead. Um, but in the American, so we're following, obviously, the American timeline <laughs> of the sci-fi world here. <laughs> and uh, and so Taco Bell created, well, uh, Alyssa, tell us the setup on this one. Right. So um, in the first Web of Fries uh, crime thriller spoof, uh, Josh Dumel is sort of digging into the reason why uh, Taco Bell's never had fries. And that tra- trailer sort of implies that he, um, you know, may die at the end, but he has this young daughter. And so Web of Fries 2, the franchise wars, this is his daughter all grown up and she's seeking revenge or she's seeking information on what happened to her father. And um, and then this is the story of the the franchise wars. So it's a sort of a prequel, prequel to... Um, Demolition Man and the story of why Taco Bell was the only restaurant to make it. So had you, uh, Alyssa, had you seen Demolition Man? I saw Demolition Man a long time ago, um, which for me, I mean, I'm 30, so it came out when I was five, so it's not that long ago, but, uh, but yeah, I have seen it. The uh, uh, Let's listen to a little bit from the new ad. So this is obviously very different from the first one. This is a dystopian sci-fi future where a gang of roving McDonald-looking clowns are the evil side of this. I remember in the first one, so in the first Web of Fries, the bad guy was Big Fries, I think was, was what they called it, like this shadowy cabal of, of fast food places. So that's kind of the continuation of that. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Rebellion is forming. Push more potatoes, Jim. Is there anything that tastes better than this? Revenge. Uh, Patrick, Sammy, what'd you guys, what'd you guys think of this one? I love the concept so much. These fake trailers are so funny to me because they're done so well. <laughs> like it looks very cinematic and it's hitting all the same beats. Uh, and Josh Duhamel is like a huge dork at the end of it too. Like it's great. And there's little nods to like other fast food references, not just uh, to McDonald's. There's like at one moment someone's upset and they're like, we've done it their way, which is like a very Burger King drag. Um, so yeah, it's super funny and I enjoy it. I don't know that, you know, I would have gotten the Demolition Man conceit at first, but that's fun. It's, I don't know, it's charming and I enjoy it. Yeah, it, it um, felt more like, initially felt more like Blade Runner to me because mm-hmm. I wanted to be like, are these fries made from real potatoes or synthetic <laughs> potatoes? They're made from those grubs that he's harvesting at the beginning of the new Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, that new, I just finally got around to watching that new Blade Runner. It is good. It's pretty good, right? That is a good but now movie. That, now that I know the Demolition Man connection, I want to see Sylvester Stallone come out at the end and say, I am the fries. <laughs> I must say there's something also about the nacho fries being illicit in these ads that makes them like all the more delicious looking in the little clips when they're dipping them in the cheese. It's like... Oh, they're they're so illegal, but they look so good. That's what was funny about when the first one came out. Like people from, I want to say Canada, they've just had fries and Taco Bell there for like ever. Like it was a non-issue. They're over. <laughs> so it. people outside the U.S. were like, "What are you talking about? Yeah, you can get fries there." 
But I think it's kind of fun the way they're treating it like you shouldn't have this. And it's like, yeah, well, you're also Taco Bell. We shouldn't have a lot of things from Taco Bell. But it's a really fun way to to sell a new product, I think. They need to do like an Untouchables version where they're like bootlegging the fries down from <laughs> Canada. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Well, one time, before we move on, though, I did want to talk about like this gang of roving Ronald McDonald clowns. I feel like there's so much dragging of McDonald of of specifically the clown lately. Like Burger King obviously did Scary Clown Night, uh, where they gave free whoppers to everyone who dressed like a clown on Halloween. Uh, that that came after it, but of course was really digging on Ronald McDonald. Wendy's just beats the crap out of him. Every day on Twitter, they have like some <laughs> some clown gag. They ripped on him a bunch in their mixtape that they put out. Uh, I forget what it was called, like the We Beefin' or whatever. Um, but uh, I don't know. Is is it? At some point, I have to admit, I'm I'm starting, and I never thought I would say this. I'm starting to feel a little sympathetic for McDonald's because they're just like <laughs> their ads are always just like, "Hey, everyone should be should be nice to each other, and you should buy like McDonald's for strangers who are having a hard." It's like there's always big hearted things, and then during the Super Bowl, we literally saw like the last McDonald's ad in the Super Bowl was just like, "You should call your mother and tell her you love her," and the Wendy's ad was like, "McDonald's should burn in hell." <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I know, mean, yeah, the, maybe the the hot take is that clowns are bad. I don't know. It feels fine to to kind of capitalize on everyone's like. It was like we woke up out of a dream where for so long we like loved clowns, and then all of a sudden we were like, guys, we all agree that clowns are bad, right? Yeah. Thanks, John uh, Wayne Gacy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to dive just back into news to talk about a bunch of turmoil in the agency and brand world. Uh, finally get around talking about Papa John, for those who've been wondering if we're going to get to that. Yes. But first, a little break. This episode is brought to you by Flipboard, a curated content app reaching over 100 million monthly users who are paying attention to great content and brands like yours. Learn more at flipboardforbrands.com. That's flipboardforbrands.com. All right. As I mentioned, uh, we, man, there's just been so much going on. Uh, Patrick's covered quite a bit of this. Alyssa's covered some of it. Um, And so we're just going to kind of recap the turmoil in the executive ranks of agencies, of brands. Uh, the, The Definitely the biggest one on the brand side, Papa John's. So Papa John himself, John Schnatter, uh, has resigned as chairman. Uh, He had stepped back, I want to say maybe a year ago, I don't remember the exact date, but he had uh, stepped back from kind of his role in the company uh, to be chairman, but he was still obviously the face of it, still popped up a bunch, still sparked controversy every once in a while by kind of blaming the NFL and uh, the Black Black Lives Matter movements and, and kneeling for reducing pizza sales, and he took a lot of heat for that. And I think... uh, it, it, Alyssa and Patrick, you guys can remind me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that's kind of what led to this is that they they wanted to have a like a role yeah, playing session. Yeah, <laughs> so like it was it was a conference call that was kind of deter- it, it was I don't really know why the creative agency was involved. We don't have that. We don't quite have that explanation yet. But it was a uh, some consultants were there apparently advising them on uh, media strategy, on PR strategy, in terms of how to avoid stepping in it. Like he did in November, and so to to uh, <laughs> quick learning experiment, he decided to go ahead and step in it even harder, and uh, use the N word uh, in one of these role playing things. Uh, it blew up very quickly. Uh, I believe Forbes first wrote about it, and uh, it has spiraled very fast. Uh, I think within twenty four hours, uh, Alyssa, does that sound right? That he had resigned. Yeah, yeah. It's been a it's been a quick downhill. 
trajectory for him. Well, as Patrick mentioned, Laundry Service, the creative agency for Papa John's, was on that call. And Patrick, am I right? You just posted about this shortly before we went in to record this. Am I right in saying that he has now kind of blamed the agency for pressuring him to use the word? He has. Uh, he essentially said, well, his his first public appearance, um, his first comments on it outside of the statement in which he confirmed that he had said the word, he went on a uh, local news show on Friday. Good call. That's a good move when your first step is local radio. Nice. And he essentially said, that for his direct quote, he said, the agency was promoting that vocabulary. They pushed me and it upset me. So he said that he didn't want to go there and that the agency was insisting that he did, which is when he used the word pressured. Um, him saying, I never would use that word. I wasn't taught to, you know, that's not the way I was brought up. Um, but that he used it in the context of trying to sort of impersonate Colonel Sanders and saying basically Colonel Sanders said this and he never got in any trouble for it. And the context is really uh, lacking here. But it's um, he's while on the call, he was essentially saying – repeatedly saying, I understand why people are mad at me. Yes, it's my fault. But at the same time, they kind of, if it hadn't been for them, I wouldn't have said it in the first place. Which is just a bizarre defense. I mean, even if you were blaming like a script writer, which this isn't even close to that. You know what I mean? Like if, if you said mm-hmm. something, it's like, oh, sorry, someone wrote that into my script. And we t- we were talking <laughs> before, before the call, like we were talking about this, the, or before, you know, we started recording this, um, we're talking about the fact that this is what's happening with Sasha Baron Cohen's new show and, and where he kind of tricked, uh, you know, a bunch of conservative, uh, you know, politicians and activists into reading these scripts on a teleprompter about kindergartners being armed with guns and why they thought it was a good idea. And same thing. A lot of the defense was, well, they put it up on the teleprompter or they, they kept pressuring me to say it. And they said that Benjamin Netanyahu really wanted me to say this. You know, it's just like because it was supposedly packaged as like a, a thing about Israeli innovation. Um, but what, what a weak defense, you know, for anybody to say, like, someone else told me to say this bad thing. <laughs> wild for grown adults to be like, my brain fell out and I forgot how to stop talking. <laughs> it's well, insane. It, it is. And the host even kept asking him multiple times, like, are you saying that they duped you into doing this? Mm-hmm. And he was like, he, he strangely said, I don't think they were nearly as sensitive to this as I was. Um, and then he asked them, he's like, so are you saying that they, they like sort of blackmailed you or that they did this with the intention of uh, making you look bad? And he said, let's put it this way. They're no longer our agency of record. Well, the, the other weird timing on this is just in the like right around the same time that all this yeah. came out, uh, Hulk Hogan was uh, was reinstated to the WWE Hall of Fame after using the N-word. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then someone even pointed out like Vince McMahon, who suspended him, is on tape using the N-word, <laughs> like on a video, using it, talking to John Cena of all people. The thing about the John Schnatter situation is that, you know, as Sammy was mentioning, this is a pretty childlike move. It's, I mean, he deflected and shifted the blame in two different situations. There was the the NFL comments and then he, you know, managed to sort of deflect and bring up Colonel Sanders. And then when that blew up, he, again, it was somebody else's fault. And so I think there's a definite sense of, you know, why are we even giving this person a platform anymore? To quote every real housewife, just own it. (laughs) 
when you do something wrong, just admit that you've done it wrong. It's way worse than trying to cover it up with like the weirdest lie possible. Yeah, I mean, everyone just, makes mistakes, but this is, this is, you know, there's more to it, obviously. Well, yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I'm sure he's, he's telling some level of truth in the sense of like that, that someone said that, you know, that the idea probably came from somewhere, but the idea of using that as your excuse is so dumb. You know, it's just like, it does not make you look any better. It just makes you look weak and kind of like you can't control your own mouth. I, I man, it's just. Well, what purpose would this strategy call about sensitive situations have if you were not to, to simulate these sensitive situations? Sure. But it sounded like it wasn't even role play at that point. It was just him telling a fun story and using extremely colorful language. About how black people used to get dragged to death on where he grew up. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just... Yeah, Yeah. it's it's one of those, you know, um, maybe there is a a time and a place to do that kind of thing. I don't know if on a big conference call where you can't see people, you know, it's just like, mm. I don't Yeah. Lots of, lots of poor decisions here. Um, but, uh, but yes, also laundry service, the agency on there has had their own, uh, pretty huge problems in the days, I believe leading up to that. That is just like a few days before, right? Patrick? Well, the timing is very interesting. It was actually the very day before. So last Monday, we broke the news that Laundry Service had parted with its CEO and its chief creative officer, who are a married couple, and that it had also laid off the the range we had was 40 to 60 people. Um, that kind of depends on what source you're listening to, but, you know, several several dozen employees were, were laid off. And, they, and there, then the, there are the a few first hundred thing people. the next morning, first thing the next morning, the news about the call broke. And the call had been, you know... Uh, I think more than it, it was in May, so mm-hmm. it was two more than two months ago, and it had just kind of been the knowledge of that incident had been sort of sitting there, um, mm. I guess waiting to be discovered. And on the same call, Schnatter uh, very strongly implied that someone from Laundry Service had leaked the story about the call to the writer at Forbes. Oh man, yeah. I mean, there's like I don't know if I would say that there's any sign of real causation between these two, but talk about two you know really high profile stories kind of kind of happening so coincidentally at the same time that it feels feels uh, hard to imagine. That was uh, so Jason Stein and Allison Warshaw. Jason is the CEO. Allison is the CCO, uh, and they are as Patrick mentioned, they're married. They've been they founded Laundry Service. They've been running it. It's grown into one of the more celebrated agencies. Uh, in recent years, uh, but uh, Patrick, I feel like you and I were just kind of talking about this recently. Like they they kept getting bigger, but it got to the point where we weren't seeing a lot of work uh, come out of them. I don't know is that is that fair? I just feel like I never was seeing a whole lot coming out of this supposedly like giant up and coming agency. I don't know if it was just because the the stuff wasn't being pitched to me, but they did win a couple of major assignments. They won um, Lincoln back in late 2017, and they were the first non-WPP agency to work on a Ford brand in uh, quite a while. Uh, So that was a huge win. And then Papa John's was a huge win at the time, too, because their uh, gray had been their agency of record. Um, But I know that laundry service is, they make ads, but they also are really well known for their social media stuff and for doing like branded content. They have a separate division called Cycle that, that is, um, specializes in branded content for younger, for like, you know, millennial and, and uh, younger audiences, which is one of the reasons why we may not have seen 
um, so much of their work because it's just not necessarily the kind of stuff that people would um, pitch to us. But yeah, I, I think of them a lot as like Odysseus Arms is another agency where they're growing, they're, they're getting a bigger reputation, but a lot of their work is like social content where if you're not following Snapchat, Instagram, you know what I mean? It's just a lot of that stuff. It's not the old-fashioned, like, here's a YouTube embed of a big cinematic two-minute ad. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, the, the sources who spoke to me regarding their, um, their layoffs stated that uh, it was a result of client attrition across multiple accounts, uh, though the Forbes story did imply that the um, laundry service, I mean, the, the uh, Papa John's, had an effect on that and also implied that laundry services parent company Wasserman had decided to resign from the Papa John's account after that incident. And that hasn't been confirmed because laundry service and Wasserman are, are not commenting, but it's um, a very interesting series of events for sure. Well, here's a, moving on to another one um, that honestly, when I was creating kind of the lineup for what we're going to talk about today, I couldn't even figure out the order in which to throw out all these because they're all kind of big. Um, but I think one of the most jarring for those of us who've been in the industry for a while or been covering it is Tam Kai Ming, the global CCO, uh, chief creative officer of Ogilvy, and really one of the most iconic figures in advertising. I feel like that's safe to say, Patrick. I think so. Yeah. Certainly one of the most visible. He uh, has been fired uh, from Ogilvy after an investigation. Uh, it was announced by John Seifert, the CEO of Ogilvy. Um, and not a lot of details. I mean, do we know really much of anything, Patrick? Uh, we don't. We just know that he um, essentially Seifert said, I learned two weeks ago about complaints made against him, and we determined after an investigation that he had violated company policy, and we terminated him immediately. Essentially, they uh, acted swiftly and decisively is what, what it looks like, um, but as of now, there's, there's not a whole lot else we can confirm. Yeah, but no, it was certainly abrupt and, and shocking in its, um, in its abruptness, and then just the, uh, the, the high profile of, uh, of – I think that he is probably the most well-known of the chief creatives to get fired recently. Yeah, and and it was um, interesting following, you know, the response to it. Uh, Kai, he's always been a bit of a divisive figure, but but not in not in any sort of like really controversial way. I mean, more like industry controversies. He's he's been a juror. He's been a jury president. He was the jury president of the Titanium uh, jury last year at Cannes, where they made some kind of you know some high profile snubs and some interestingly, I would say, kind of weird picks. Uh, and Kai kind of was credited slash blamed with with some of that. Um, but beyond that, people usually either just like him or they don't based on his kind of demeanor. He, he's got a bit of a swagger uh, that, I, I don't know, like it's it's a hard thing to summarize someone's kind of, you know, the, the way they come off. I mean, he's certainly always been pleasant enough uh, in public, but it's more just like he, he had this uh, kind of very prideful almost to the point of of boasting and and you know I, I don't think he really shied away from kind of having a bit of an, an ego out there um but at the same time it was never you know he never got up and kind of just made fun of anybody else uh, but yeah always seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a divisive figure people either really liked him or really did not people are going to roll their eyes when i say this but he was the ad world's equivalent of a rock star for for lack of a better way to put it um he got a lot of attention. He was especially known, as you as you mentioned before, for 
the role that he played in award shows and for um, promoting Ogilvy's work around the world every year. Now, you recently wrote about kind of the death of the global CCO role. And even at the time, you and I were joking because, like, Kai liked your tweets about <laughs> like, like, it was just kind of funny seeing, like, Tam Kai Ming liked your your tweet about the death of the global CCO, which is literally his job. Um, and Well, I it, talked to him for that story. Yeah. And, and so, like, what was his kind of take on that? Of Because of, we have seen quite a few global CCOs. In fact, we still have another one to talk about in a minute. Um, quite a few global CCOs either have their positions eliminated or leave under conditions like this. Uh, so what was his take on that? Well, he said that, that the chief creative officer is, is very much needed, you know, that, that there needs to be a um, very public figure like himself to defend the value of creativity and advertising. Otherwise, it'll just kind of get shuffled off to the account people. And, um, you know, it'll all be about uh, ROI and, and KPIs and things like that. And that if we don't, you know, have someone to speak passionately um, about the value of creativity, then, then it will just be downgraded. And uh, not not to spend too much more time because we are kind of out of time. But uh, McCann Health also fired its global CCO, uh, Jeremy Perot. Or I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing yeah, that right. Um, but uh, again, kind of very similar in the sense they said that there was an investigation and they terminated him. Uh, do we know anything else, Patrick? We did have a, a source claiming that the cause in this case was quote offensive and inappropriate language, which is very vague. Yeah, and kind of Kevin Roberts esque uh, from you know the the Saatchi chairman. Um, you know when when it, a lot of a lot of what he was, I think he resigned. Right. I don't think I can't remember he if he did. was terminated, but uh, yeah, it was similar where he just made made quite a few comments that uh, were were not appropriate. Um, and it, so I guess big picture, Patrick, looking at all this. I feel like we went through this wave uh, after Me Too, kind of around that time of a lot of things coming to light, and then it kind of quieted down. Uh, we, we didn't have quite as – because we had five or six pretty high-profile ousters we of CEOs, like, like all – you know, all men, um, and uh, if I, you know, unless I'm I'm missing one, uh, but now there's just kind of this new raft of them. Are there any threads tying all this together? It, it seems like probably, but we just don't have enough information to know. No, we we really don't. But I think the the overarching theme would be greater scrutiny on people's behavior, on the the behavior of people in leadership roles. Certainly, when you read about after an internal investigation, and you you know you see the word. That, that this person violated our code of conduct, et cetera, then, you know, even if you don't know necessarily what the specific offense was, you you get the sense that these organizations are cracking down internally. Yeah, there's a line in the uh, Ogilvy CEO's email to the staff that has stuck with me because he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said, um, this is just this is a good reminder that no one is above the law, like that no one right. is above the rules. Uh, and I feel like that's, to your point, kind of that trend that we're seeing is that maybe, I mean, you can't really say this, but you can kind of think it is that maybe 10, especially 20 years ago, a lot of this stuff probably would have brushed under the rug. Uh, and I, I think that was a lot of the point of the JWT lawsuit. You know, it's just saying that a lot of these things, these comments had just been tolerated and that the people who brought them to light were the ones who were punished. I think looking back at it, we will see the JWT lawsuit as a turning point, even though it was it got sort of lost um, 
in the in the news, you know, turnover, uh, and and it sort of floated for almost two years, I want to say. But I think that we and and the fact that there was a settlement, um, it really did mark a turning point, I believe, and that it got so much media attention, and then so many people saw it and said. If he did the things that are alleged in the suit, then that's just, you know, it's just not right. All right. Well, we are out of time, but thank you, uh, Patrick. Thank you, Alyssa, both for making so much time. Uh, and uh, Alyssa, it was your first podcast. How'd it go? It went great. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It was our pleasure. We loved having a good good reason to bring you on, and I'm sure we will have you back soon. Uh, Sammy, you're going to be around for one or two more episodes at least, right? Yeah, one or two more. And I just want to say I've spent the last like 30 minutes trying to think of a freaking bear market pun to go along with the Build-A-Bear story. And it hasn't really come to me, so that's all I have to give you. (laughs) Make your own joke. Keep an eye on our Twitter. (laughs) It's a bear market. It's, yeah, no. Um, All right. Well, thank you, everybody. uh, And uh, we we will be back soon. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, This episode was edited by Lane McGivney. Thank you, Lane. Uh, Please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us, and they also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Bye.